Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, teaching tax. Technology has reshaped the landscape of tax law practice and education. But how are educators adapting to these changes? Joining me now from his home in Virginia is Tax Notes Today reporter Jonathan Curry. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Always good to be here. So who did you talk to? I had the pleasure of speaking with Omri Marion. He is the director of UCI Law School's tax program. What did you talk about? Well, we talked about the challenges of teaching in the middle of a pandemic, how he's come up with some rather unorthodox methods of keeping his classes engaged. I won't spoil those for you, but you're going to want to listen out for that. And we also covered the technological revolution in tax law and how he's been building his program from the ground up to make sure his students are ready to jump into the workforce. All right, let's go to that interview. Omri, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Glad to be here. Well, I'm curious what you're going to have to say today. One of the things that I've been kind of interested to find out is how you as a law professor are adapting to teaching during a pandemic. I mean, what does a typical class look like right now? So all classes right now are done through Zoom. They're completely online. They're live classes. So at least in theory, they're the same as uh, regular classes, except that they're being done online. That, of course, is in theory because I find that much harder to figure out students' responses when you can't actually see them or hear them. Worst thing that happens is when I tell a joke, I have no idea if anyone is laughing. Just, <laughs> I feel kind of stupid. <laughs> but I'll try to give you that feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that it is challenging, again, mostly because the, the interaction is not the same as it is in the live context. I will say however, that it goes much better than I expected. I think leadership of legal education generally in the country and also in our school did a fantastic job moving online very, very quickly, adapting to the situation very quickly. And I don't think there is a major interruption in terms of the contents the students are getting, at least from a point of view of a substantive content, I mean. So I would say so far so good, but I think it is also too early in the process to tell what are the long-term effects of this. Have you heard any feedback from professors and students and how they're handling this so far? One of the things that I'm seeing is uh, the creativity of professors. Students are finding new ways to teach students. For example, I recorded a song for my students over a presentation of the tax issue that we discussed at that point, which was deductions. And (laughs) other professors are hosting celebrities in their classes. Also something I did, I had Oscar Nunes, Oscar from The Office, greet my class. Oh, no kidding. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) How did you manage to get Oscar Nunes to get involved? Oh, I paid him. (laughs) So (laughs) there's no magic. There you go. (laughs) But the thing is getting students engaged in different ways. The creativity goes to how to get students engaged. And I have to say that students, as far as I'm concerned, and also something I hear from other professors, at least in my law school, they're doing a really good job at at trying to be there, which is kind of amazing because I really think it is much more challenging to students than it is to professors. It is very taxing to teach online for 90 minutes or two hours at a time, but I only have to do it once or twice a day. Students... This is basically their full-time schedule is sitting in front of a computer and learning online. And actually, I'm quite amazed at how well they're doing so far. That said, I'm also happy that there are only three and a half weeks left for the semester. 
So they don't have to cope with it for too long, at least not for this semester. I imagine Austrian Union's agents going to be getting a lot of requests from other accounting <laughs> professors who are going to be a little jealous and kicking themselves. They didn't think of it first. Even probably staying pretty busy going forward. Right. Now, to talk about the program itself, so as I understand, UCI Law's tax program is perhaps a little bit different than most. Could you tell us a little about the program and what are some of the unique ways that you're preparing the next generation of tax professionals? Yeah, of course. I'll be happy to. So I've been asked about, now it's four years ago to start a tax program at UCI by the previous dean, and I said that I'm willing to do so, provided that I and the other involved faculty will be getting the resources to start a program that is different than other programs because we didn't really want to have just another tax program. There are about 25 or 30, I guess, tax programs in the country now, and just having another one was not very appealing to us. And actually, what we did, we for a year, over a year actually, we traveled all around the country and interviewed tax professionals trying to figure out what it is that we can make different. The tax programs, even though there are excellent tax programs, but that they do not currently offer. And I think we came up with a pretty unique curriculum when compared to other tax programs, and at least in two aspects. One of them is the practical aspect. So our program is very much, I think, clearly divided between a doctrinal piece and a practical piece. So you have to meet a practical tax skills requirement, which most students do through an externship. So the second semester of the program, they're only on campus three days, and two days they're away at the places of externship. So they actually graduate the program with real practical experience, and we have all kinds of employers participating in our externship program. We have law firms, we have state and federal agencies, we have multinational corporations. So for example, right now we have externs at SpaceX, at Hyundai Capital, at Activision, at Mar Brown, Paul Hastings. And because this is a mandatory requirement, is pretty different than any other program. The other thing that we did, again, and this was a response for something we heard from employers, is that they really wanted students to be ready for the tax profession of tomorrow, not that one of today, in terms of knowing how to provide legal advice based on data and how to work with new platforms that assist tax professionals. So we decided that we're going to take it very seriously and we incorporate these platforms or these ideas in our program. So for example, we have a cooperation with Alteryx, which is a big data analytics company. We actually built a whole course around their platform in which students are basically given thousands and thousands of rows of data and are required to create reports that contain legal advice based on the data. Most multinational corporations use this software. As far as I know, we're the only program that actually teaches how to work with it. So Alteryx were kind enough to license the software to us for free. We're incorporating a natural language processing based software in our tax classes. So we have a cooperation with a firm called Blue Jay Legal based in Toronto. It has a machine learning platform, which is based on natural language processing, trying to predict outcomes in tax. So this is incorporated in many of our courses. And I have to say, I'm amazed at how well the software is working. We have a tax modeling class. So we teach lawyers how to model tax outcomes based on data. So we are really focused on preparing students to how we think tax practice is going to look like in the next three, four, five years. Now, do you think that these skills that you're training students for, are these sort of broadly applicable or are they more just aimed at the bigger firms and companies that have a lot of resources? No, I think they are broadly applicable for two reasons. First of all, of course, the large firms, mostly I think the big four, are now adopting these tools. 
And I think in that sense, this is already there. I think we're just making our students more marketable in that sense because they're coming into the big four or similar large firm or multinationals with the knowledge. They don't have to be trained in-house to acquire these skills. But one of the things that we're seeing with these platforms is what can be referred to as the democratization of data or the democratization of AI. These softwares or these platforms make it very easy and relatively cheap for anyone to analyze big data without being a data scientist. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a programmer. And yet I teach the class on tax and data analytics because I'm able to do it given how easy the software or the platforms make the use of big data. So I expect that the first adopters will be big four large multinationals, but I expect also that very quickly this will get into government. The IRS already does a lot of work with data analytics and AI. And I also expect that small firms will be able to leverage this software very easily. So for example, the software we're working with that is based on natural language processing, if you learn how to work with it, you can cut your research time on a legal question. You, you can cut the first 10 to 20 hours of research. So this is something that I think is going to be extremely appealing to boutique, especially tax controversy boutique firms. I expect that it will take them a bit more time to adopt, so, but they will eventually adopt it. I, I cannot imagine the practice practices remain the same in the next five or 10 years, given that these technologies are going to be very commonly used in the tax market. Now, what would you say to someone who might argue that this is a, a zero-sum bargain? You're teaching these practical or technical skills, but it's coming at the expense of doctrinal knowledge of the law itself. Well, first, that's wrong because I'm also teaching the law itself. So the program is very doctrinal in the first semester. I mean, we absolutely do not neglect the doctrinal aspect of it. I honestly don't think you can be a good tax lawyer if you don't have doctrinal knowledge. So we absolutely cannot neglect the doctrinal part of it. And I will tell it now to any future student, any tax professional, even people that adopt it, this will be useless for you if you're not a great doctrinal person. This is true, I think, for any AI application, not only in law. It's nice if you're a data scientist, but if you know how to work with data, but it is unhelpful to you if you are not also a subject matter expert and if you don't know how to put the data to use, and you can only do that if you actually know the law. So I don't think this is going to replace lawyers. I think it is going to change the way lawyers work. I think it's going to change how many people are assigned to a specific task, for example, or how lawyers approach a specific task. It may uh, create new lines of work within the legal profession. But at the end of the day, there's going to have to be a lawyer there to make a judgment call and to draft the memo and to give advice, which is based on legal experience. So I think it will change the legal market. I don't think it's going to replace lawyers. And I absolutely do not think it is going to replace the need to have very good doctrinal knowledge of tax law and tracking it and being on top of what's going on with reforms. Most likely, it takes time before any of these softwares or platforms are being updated every time there's a new tax bill, which is basically every day. So yeah, sure um, seems that way. Yes. So I don't think it can replace very in-depth doctrinal knowledge, which I said for like four times now. So if you're not convinced, I can say it again. <laughs> <laughs> One more time, just for good measure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. You need to know doctrine. <laughs>
Okay, thank you. Is there anything that you wish that you had known as a tax student? Oh, yes. So here's a personal story. I did a tax LLM at the University of Michigan, and then I went practicing at Salvan and Cromwell in New York. Probably 50% of my time, what I did there was structured notes offering, so the, the tax aspect of it, which meant I actually had to know how to use Excel. And I had to learn it on job, which was not a very pleasant experience, I have to say. So, I mean, if, I, if one advice I give to tax students right now, still focus on doctrine, because I think as lawyers, this is the most important part. But you really need to be open to acquire and try to acquire yourself new skills. And it's actually not that hard to acquire those skills. Again, the democratization of data is something quite amazing. I did programming certificates online or I can't even remember how much it was, but it was really, really cheap. I mean, you can find ways to acquire the skills you need to give you the edge as a successful tax lawyer for very cheap. So my advice to tax students is still focus on your doctrinal studies, but find the time to know a little bit more about data analytics and about the basic data analytics software, even just Excel through online courses. This is a huge bang for the buck. And if you are able to intelligently discuss data analytics in an interview, this will give you a huge advantage over people who can't. And most people, unfortunately, in law schools can't today. Well, Omri, that does it for my questions. But uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we move on, we have a bit of one of Professor Marion's songs. This one is on ordinary and necessary business expenses. And now, coming attractions. Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the Tax Notes magazines. Joining me from her home is Content and Acquisitions Manager Faye McRae. Faye, what will you have for us? Thank you, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Jason Chen explains how the CARES Act Economic Stimulus Package affects individuals. Michael Levine explains how two areas of federal tax common law could be used to relieve tax reporting requirements. In Tax Notes State, Michael Fatal discusses cases relating to dormant commerce clause standards as applied to state taxation. Craig Griffith discusses a solar energy tax reduction. In Tax Notes International, Alexandra Ball explains new VAT rules for e-commerce transactions that will take effect on January 1, 2021. Stephanie Perilla and Bo Scheel examine how tax advisors can structure cash pools based on OECD's new transfer pricing guidance. And on the opinions page, Roxanne Bland considers legislative supermajority requirements for raising or enacting new taxes. Joseph Thorndike discusses the near-miss fiasco of the 1943 filing season. You can read all that and a lot more in the April 20th editions of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or a review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. 
Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.